Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. My son, Bryce, FaceTimed Cindy this week to wish her a happy Mother's Day. Here's Bryce with his new addition to his family. That's my son's in the back. <laughs> this nebula is out here, what the, what the name of this. I guess this is our official grand dog. Yeah. No, 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 Blaze's got dogs, but there he is. Well, he FaceTimed Cindy to wish her a happy Mother's Day on Wednesday. We were together not for his call, but on Wednesday we had arrived in Colorado where he is now on post at Fort Carson. And he turned to his younger brother, Braden, and said, Have you called to wish Mother a happy Mother's Day? And Braden said, No, it's, that's Sunday. And Bryce answered, Well, I'm pretty sure that May 10th is Mother's Day, big fella. So it was my time to respond. I said, Bryce, Mother's Day is the second Sunday of May. It has been that way since Woodrow Wilson, and I have preached dozens of Mother's Day sermons on the second Sunday of May. Well, it's on my calendar that says May 10th is Mother's Day. Well, finally, his wife spoke up, Leslie, and she said, Bryce, May 10th is Mother's Day in Mexico. Leslie is from Mexico. She would know these things. And so finally, Bryce, who can never admit a mistake, halfway surrendered and suggested that Braden FaceTime Cindy anyway, wish her a happy Mother's Day, and speak only in Spanish. <laughs> yes, I have given dozens of these sermons on this day. I, don't, I didn't speak last Mother's Day, however. My mother had just passed. I was quite literally in the cemetery on the second Sunday in May last year. Mother's Day is sweet and nostalgic for many families. It is tragic and dreaded by others for a host of reasons. Some reasons obvious, some reasons not. And I understand that better than ever. So today, this is one of those talks that moms can appreciate, I hope. Also one that dads and those who are not parents can hear and get behind. It's not an ode to motherhood. I want to speak today about children. Maybe that is obvious from the text as Jesus emphatically made the innocence and the humility of a child central to understanding and participating in the kingdom of God. Not a week goes by, though, that I don't hear someone say something like, Oh, these young people today, what is wrong with them? This is going to be the end of us, the last generation. What with how these kids live and what they believe. Well, to quote one renowned expert, these children today 
only love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders. Children today are tyrants. They no longer show courtesy. They contradict their parents. They chatter unceasingly without correction. They act as if they own the household and they terrorize their teachers. That expert was Socrates 2,400 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) My point is that children are always going to be children. That's the nature of being a child. Don't worry about the young people and the young adults of, the, of today, they are going to be fine. They are going to excel. In ways different than you, yes. With beliefs somewhat adjusted from yours or mine, absolutely. But let's not worry about the children. Let's be more concerned with those who influence and teach our children. And no, this is not a teacher or educational system bashing talk forthcoming. Jesus, Lord, leave teachers alone. They have the hardest single job in American society today. And I default to an adage that I've shared many times over. If teachers made what professional athletes made, and professional athletes made what teachers made, our society would be better and stronger for it. No, I want to speak about one type of instruction being imposed upon teachers, upon children. Teachers can teach it, to be sure. So can parents and grandparents, especially parents and grandparents. Aunts, uncles, neighbors, peers, talking heads on your television, the men and women who stand behind a pulpit, they can get a shot at it. And so many are so eager to pass along to the younger generation what they have learned. But it is a learning with no future. It is a lesson plan for disaster. It is a handbook for ending a society. It is exactly what Jesus refers to. It is, a call, it is causing a young one to stumble and to fall. It is a great millstone tied around every neck and every community and every society that permits this one type of instruction to persist. It's not Marxism. It's not capitalism. It's not liberal or conservative fiscal policy. It's not about sex, gender, race, or bathroom signs. Oh, it's far more simple and far more profound than that. I'm sometimes sometimes asked... How long does it take you to prepare a sermon? Well, that depends. After the week I've had, I didn't have the time to put in all the time that I usually take. That's usually 15 to 20 hours. I'm not saying every person who speaks needs that kind of time. I do. But sometimes a talk will erupt in minutes and the only work is the time it takes to get it onto paper furiously in a stream of consciousness. How I wish that that happened more often than it does. And sometimes the talk takes weeks or days or months and it has to stew and brew and anyone in a creative vocation understands this. Artists or songwriters, authors, designers, planners of all kinds. There's a story about Pablo Picasso, the renowned Spanish painter. He lived in Paris for most of his adult life and one day he was sketching in the park. Imagine finding Picasso sketching in the park. 
Well, that's exactly what happened. A woman recognizes him on a bench, and somehow she convinces him to make a sketch of her. So he does on his little pad of paper, and then he hands it to her. She is amazed. It is this tiny little masterpiece. And she says to him, how much does it cost? And he said, madame, 5,000 francs, which would be saying $25,000, $30,000 today. And she is appalled. She is scandalized. She said, 5,000 francs, it only took you five minutes. And he said, ma'am, as he pulled the sketch back from her, it did not take me five minutes to do that sketch. It took my whole life to do that sketch. Hmm. This talk today hasn't taken me my whole life, but it has taken me a year. One year ago, I hopped on a plane headed for Detroit, Michigan to give a talk at Rochester University, and my mother passed away while I was in the air. I landed, I gave my speech, I rerouted all of my travel, I started Working on my mother's eulogy on the return flight, I got to my father's side, I gathered up all of my children, and in my hand on those flights was this book, and I have a picture of it for you here. It's entitled, And the Sea is Never Full. It is a memoir, the second volume of the memoirs of Elie Weissel. Weissel, who died in 2016, was a Holocaust survivor, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and a tireless advocate for any group of people experiencing prejudice or bigotry. His books and his witness have influenced me as much or more than anything I have ever read, and it was his words I was reading when my mother died. I finished the book just this week on the anniversary of my mother's death. It took me a whole year to read this one book. His style is simple, but his words are heavy. His themes, profound. His sufferings and those of his people are devastatingly penetrating. It's not a book that you take with you to read at the beach over the weekend. I can assure you of that. And it's vital, as lucid and as direct as anyone I have ever read who gets right at that most dangerous instruction being supplied to our children today. In a single word. Hatred. Hatred is not instinctive. It is learned. It is learned because it is taught. It is taught Because there are those with acquired and entrenched bigotry, intolerance, and animosity who wish these grievances to be passed down to others. And when it is passed down to others, children learn to hate the same people that their elders hate. The child stumbles. The great millstone is fastened to the necks of those doing the instructing and society moves toward the edge Of disaster. Having a pluralistic society of different races, religions, political views, ethnicities, sexual orientations, colors, and creeds is not the problem. Teaching our children to hate others whose race, religion, ethnicity, sexuality, color, or creed is not ours or is different than ours, that is the problem. 
It's a psychological, emotional, and spiritual wonder. Really it is. Love is natural. To seek connection, to unite your heart with another, to trust, to welcome, to embrace. The human heart naturally does these things. A child born into the world intuitively, automatically loves. But hatred, these are learned. Acquired points of view, learned and acquired by living with those and observing those whose biases are being lived out. As early as three or four years of age, children become aware of the differences among people, but that does not mean they become hateful about those differences. That has to be taught to the child. I'll show you. I think I got a picture of my boys. Did I give you one, Garrett? No? Uh, one of them. This is Blaze, 24, 23 years ago. One time he and Bryce, who you've already seen, were playing. They were three, four years old. About that age, you begin to recognize differences. And Blaze was Buzz. And Bryce was Woody from Toy Story. And they're wild and crazy in the house and shirtless, as all young children should be, right? Feral children. And in the midst of their rough housing, Woody's hat goes flying and Blaze picks it up. And as he's returning it to Bryce, he looks at it. Imagine this is the hat. And he goes... And he lays it against his lily white chest. And then he walks over to his brother. And he lays it against Bryce's chest. And then he threw it and said, You're brown like Woody's hat. <laughs> it was a revelation. It was the first time that he saw it. Children begin to see differences, of course. And of course, we are different. Of course, there is tribalism. Of course, there are in-groups and out-groups. Of course, there are differences across ethnic, religious, national, political, racial, and gender lines. Of course, there will be differences of opinion and arguments about such things. But the reality of the world is diversity. And this diversity is to be celebrated and appreciated, not to be resented or hated. The child naturally would celebrate the multiplicity of it all with curiosity and with wonder. But adults, often hardened by their experiences, nursing grievances both real and imagined, with conflated views of entire groups of people, or in the words of Andrew Marlin, their pride has a way of holding too firmly to history. They pass these along intentionally to the children around them. And these adults don't have to be parents. They just have to be in a position of influence. Dr. Deborah A. Byrnes stating the obvious. Prejudice is learned in the same way other attitudes and values are learned. Primarily through association, reinforcement, and modeling. 
through the messages they receive in the world around them, children will reproduce these messages if they are repeated often enough. Not only do adults teach prejudice directly through reinforcement, but children often learn these attitudes by simply observing their parents and other adults talking about and interacting with people from other groups. Initially, such attitudes are quite flexible. However, as children grow older, such attitudes become much more difficult to change. I cannot improve upon the great Elie Wiesel. He who lost everyone he loved and everything he believed in at Auschwitz. He who experienced and understood the desperate dangers of hatred, but he who himself never succumbed to hatred himself, which in and of itself is a miracle of God. Hear the words of this prophet. I'll read more than what you will see on the screen. I'll bring that up in a moment, Garrett. These words were written in the mid-1980s, long before September 11th, long before the resolution in Kosovo and Bosnia, long before the invention of social media, a pandemic, the fragmentation of Europe, and the most recent social upheaval in our own country. Weissel says, It does not take much for human beings, collectively or individually, to suddenly pit themselves like wild beasts, one against the other, their worst instincts laid bare. One decision, one simple word, and a family or a community will drown in its own blood or perish in the flames. Hatred is uniquely human, willed by man, not God. Thus, God cannot stop it. We must. It is our duty to expose the danger of hatred by naming it, by confronting it. For hatred is a pernicious cancer. It is never satisfied. Those who hate refuse to accept another person as a human being. They will attempt the impossible to prevent others from dreaming, loving, thinking, all in pursuit of their own selfish ends. They opt for the easiest and most mind-reducing way out by digging a ditch into which both the hater and the victim will fall. To hate is to kindle wars that will turn children into orphans. And make old people lose their minds from sorrow. Hatred makes the face of God impossible. It wipes out all liberty. It distorts the truth. It is urgent and imperative to defeat it before it overwhelms us. How can we achieve this? By resisting its most visible form. Fanaticism. No. Not all fanatics are filled with hate. But be sure that all who are filled with hate are fanatics. Wars between races, religions, political ideologies, economic interests. They have, what they have in common is the fanatic. The fanatic, the one driven by hatred, degenerates the moment he excludes those different than himself. His discourse is monolithic and hostile. He listens only to himself and in order not to hear others. He is a universe deprived of diversity, blinded by passion, the, the 
the fanatic turns divine beauty into human ugliness. He usurps God's place in creation, striving to make every person in his image while gagging or killing those who refuse. Trust me when I say that one does not hate in the abstract. He will have to put hatred into practice, and he will not relent until he has turned his world into a jail. For those who hate, Do not feel free and alive except when others are not. Hatred has no mercy for those who refuse to resist it. It kills whoever will not stand against it. So parents, teach your children that to hate is to mutilate their own future. Teachers, tell your pupils That hatred is the negation of every triumph that culture and civilization may achieve. Politicians, tell your constituents that hatred is, at every level, your principal enemy, and it is theirs. Leaders, tell all those who listen to you that hatred breeds hatred and can breed nothing else. Tell them that nothing good, nothing great, nothing that is alive, can be born of hate. This is what we must tell all men and women for whom we wish a future as bright and smiling as the faces of our children. If we do nothing, hate will come sneaking into their mouths and crawling into their eyes. If we do nothing, we will be passing on to our children the hatred of racism, fanaticism, xenophobia, bigotry, and anti-Semitism, those who sow such things today are, provi- are providing tomorrow's catastrophe. You see why it took a year to read that book? And then Weissel encourages us all to do just a bit, the bit that we can. He says, and yet, One must wager on the future. To save the life of a single child, no effort is useless. To make one tired old man smile is to perform an essential task. To defeat injustice and misfortune, if only for one instant, for one victim, is to invent a new reason To hope. Oh yes I know. It is not always easy. To hope. I study. I teach. I guide my students. I am happy. I am sad. I write. In short. I try not to die before I am dead. For each of us. In our own way with the limited means at our disposal, we do what we can. Doing what we can, only what we can, is as high a calling as anyone can answer.